My name's Kendra Houseman from Out of the Shadows, and you're about to listen to a series of interviews that took place over nine months. I want to know what life would be like for a child that had been through domestic abuse, parental mental health, poverty, and exploitation, to name a few. What would happen if we created a team, an army almost, to support that child? 28 people were interviewed, all with the same question in mind. What could have been different for child B? You're about to listen to Blondie's People. So follow us on our journey where I will speak to everyone from George the Poet to some of my good friends as we discover what it takes to become one of Blondie's people. Within these episodes, you will find answers, you will find guidance, and most of all, you will find an insight to a world that many do not know. There's a trigger warning for some of these episodes, and some of them are not child-friendly. We're going to talk about things that are very, very raw and real. So kick back and get ready for a journey, a journey you will not forget. Welcome to Blondie's People. Yes. So... I'm Kendra Houseman from Out of the Shadows and I'm interviewing people for uh, Blondie's People. People that inspire me now, but also would have been good to be there for Blondie when she was younger. Um, today I'm talking to my friend who's a little bit nervous. So who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> Such a big question. Who am I? Why am I here is the question. I'm a little bit in awe because I've been watching you do these and I've seen some of the incredible people that you've been talking to. So yeah, that's why I'm a little bit nervous. So I'm Becky. I work at a local secondary school in Thanet. Um, it's quite a deprived area and I work in the SCN department. I'm the intervention coordinator. Okay, so I work with you. I know what, I, what you do. But if I didn't know you, what, what does that look like? What kind of things do you have to do? Okay, so according to my job role, <laughs> what I'm supposed to do is identify the appropriate interventions for students in accordance to what their diagnosed SEN is, to what their yeah. diagnosed special educational needs are. Um, very often the students don't have diagnosed needs, so we do have to kind of work through a filtration process of figuring out what would fit better for them. Um, so an intervention will be a small group or one-to-one -one based situation where they work with one of our incredible teaching assistants who then deliver a set programme of work to try and fill those gaps in their understanding. Do you ever have to make the programme of work up or do you get it from somewhere? Or do you... oh, I make it up all the time, all okay. the time. I've actually made up with a, a colleague who left quite a long time ago, we made up a three-year rolling programme for teaching kids social communication skills. It's not because there's a lack of resources out there. There are some incredible resources out there. And there are some incredibly generous professionals who share their stuff yeah. on, on a wide forums. So you can find things, but I just think... SEN is such an individualised issue that it just works for me very often to just revisit these things and, and write them. Make it more bespoke. It's very bespoke. I've seen the stuff that you do and it, and it is bespoke. Now, before we go any further, because Becky's very worried that people are going to say, is she a specialist? So here, here where we are, right? To me, Becky is a specialist. It's who I've always gone to and always will go to. And before we even get started, this woman knows what she's talking about and she's going to break it down, I hope, on a very easy level. So we'll come back to me a little bit. Um, I had SCN all my life, I, I would imagine, I don't know. But I didn't get diagnosed with um, ADHD until I was 24 and I didn't get diagnosed with being dyslexic until I was 21. I displayed it all in school. And the two doctors that eventually dealt with me said that the problem could have been because it presents different in females. Mm -hmm. 
true? Not true? Like, how does that sit with you? And what's your thoughts on that? Um, it doesn't sit well with me, but it's, it's a fact. Yeah. Um, and it is something that I think is getting better yeah. slowly. So I've been doing this for a very, very long time now. I've worked at the school I'm at for 15 years. And when I first started zoning in, in particular around social communication difficulties, the ratio to, of males to female that were being diagnosed was, it was something ridiculous, like 20 to one. Really? It was absolutely ridiculous. They, those figures have dropped. Yeah. So we are getting better at identifying females in that particular area. Yeah. But still, the ratio is far higher. Males will be identified quicker. That's ADHD, ASC, dyslexia, across the board. So, so it's still disproportionate. And, that, and that's often what the answer is. Well, females present differently. Well, if they've been saying females present differently since you was 21 and somebody first said to you, it's probably because you present differently, then why the hell haven't we reconsidered our diagnostic criteria to be more suitable for females in the way they present. That's something that I get quite riled up about <laughs> because I, I just understand it. It just seems, and I'm not in any position to move anything like that forward. And there are lots of things that I don't know that could be going on to, to address that. But I do know that it's not happening enough that we are seeing any of those changes. What problems can that cause? I mean, I'm thinking of one student in particular, but obviously we can't name them. What students does that cause? What problems does that cause if if a girl isn't diagnosed and has to sort of go through school to to year nine, say, and they haven't got a formal diagnosis? What pressure does that put you in your role? I mean, it just goes so far. It's that's just so massive. It can be something as as some of the, the girls that we get in when they come into year seven have gone the whole way through primary without being diagnosed. Yeah. And that primary is a very cushy little area. I mean, obviously they're expected to work to their levels, don't get me wrong, but because it's a very safe, predictable kind of living, um, it just doesn't come through. So that's no blame on the primary school. Right. Obviously we have to then hit the ground running because by about term two of them being in secondary, they're flagging it's all going dreadfully wrong. And that very often presents, especially, I will keep harping back to autism, because that's kind of where, where my, my area lies, but yeah. um, especially in my friendships. And so then you have this constant battle between little groups of friends getting into issues, or you have these girls that are just completely isolated and have got nobody to spend any time with. And that can overspill in a lot of different ways. So it may well be that they then start trying to identify with groups of friends that aren't necessarily the right group of friends for them. Yep. Or they become more and more isolated. Um, and then they become identified by some of the kids as being a bit of an easy target. And it, it just can spill over into so many different areas. So then by the time you get to year nine, which obviously by then all of the hormones are kicking in, yeah. It can be really dangerous. And you know, especially in, in some of the areas you work in, these, these girls can get themselves involved with things that they should have, with that nobody's got any business being involved in, but they should just never yeah. have been around that, that kind of atmosphere or environment. And sometimes they're not aware of the danger, are they? Even though we sit and talk with them, same pupils, they just like oblivious to it. And yeah. Yeah. And you're right, autism is where you're an autism champion. That's where your speciality is lying. For me, when my own daughter, who's still going through the process, she's undiagnosed 
She's undiagnosed SEM, but if we want to break it down, there's speech and communication before we get there. The fact that I can say it, there's speech and communication has come from you, not from no one else. There's only one other person that's helped me understand my daughter's SEM needs, and that's a lady called Sophie. But you're the one that has shown me everything. So tell me about autism in girls, because I didn't even know that's what was going on really until I spoke to you. So how does that look for people? Um, I mean, it really is. I think the older the, the female gets as well, it, it presents quite differently. So very often with the younger girls, you do notice that they are either, as I said before, circulating in groups of people mm -hmm. where they don't truly understand what's going on, or they're very isolated. They're getting into trouble in class. One of the big things that I notice is that very often they're written off quite quickly as being either arrogant or disengaged or too blunt. <laughs> yeah, naughty, naughty, that is always, or just, you know, they're kind of viewed as being a bit of a madam, or they're a little bit pedantic, because they don't want to toe the line, because there is this expectation of how females will, and it, I don't care what anyone says, it's not a spoken expectation there, you know, it's, people talk about the fact that females do better in school, so there does seem to be this expectation that most females will toe the line and behave a particular way, so when you get that female who can't can't just engage the way that they're expected to they then get that label within the classroom um, and so then they've also got that issue within the classroom they've got that issue within their social environment they become more and more um, isolated and they internalize and then it can go down the route of self-harm yeah there to me there seems to be a massive correlation between a lot of our female students self-harming yeah. Um, the rise in mental health among our female students, um, issues with mental health. Um, there's also the question of, uh, of gender. A lot of the females do start questioning their place, who they are, their identity. Uh, and for a lot of them, that identity is, actually identity is the key word. Yeah. What yeah. is my identity in my social environment? What is my identity as an individual? Where do I live? What we see quite a lot, don't we, Becky, in the work that we do is we see girls that will then sometimes go online and start drawing towards other people who, who aren't in their immediate circle. And a lot of the times, then people are looking to cause harm, are looking to exploit. And then breaking that down to somebody who doesn't see the same social barriers we do can be difficult, can't it? Definitely. I mean, we've had to do it. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Because these are these individuals think that they found they found their people. Yeah. They think that they found people that, that are interested in them. Isn't and they it? don't understand that they're not they're not interested in what you think they're interested in. No, they haven't got a clue. In another interview, it's not gone out yet, but I speak and um, the person says people don't want to have to look at the fact that SEN students are at a high risk of sexual exploitation. It makes people feel very uncomfortable. It's, it does anyway. They're like, oh, CSE. But the thought that our, our autistic girls and boys are, could be exposed in that way, people, it almost, it seems to me, don't want to acknowledge it. And we see the outcome of that, of, of people that can be quite damaged because people are doing this, aren't they? Definitely. And you can see it in the, in the justice system. Um, how many how many young offenders are actually undiagnosed SEM, whether that's ASD, ADHD, dyslexia, whatever, you know, it, it's a high proportion. So obviously it's not just us that are seeing this happening, it's going on. So why aren't we addressing it? Why are we just treating every individual the same way? 
as we said at the very beginning, SEN is very individualized. You have to target that individual, not just the need. You have to make it fit that, that individual person. And it's frustrating because the work that we do with these students, we, we're doing good work, but we know in other areas, in other different schools, in different areas, SEN is not even really at the forefront, is it? And, and that's very frustrating when we're trying to work with these young people. Definitely, especially when they are young people that then transfer to our school. And again, we've got a lot of ground that we have to try and make up. And you've also then got to unpick, and that's something that we don't always acknowledge. Well, because we go through the process so often that we kind of just get on with it. But when you step back and think about it, when these young people come to us, we've then got to unpick what their belief of who they are. Yeah. Their lack of worthiness. Rebuilding their identity. Yeah. So again, that's a that's a massive piece of work. There's another side to it as well that we have to deal with. I have to deal with, with my own child, and I know you deal with when these these girls that are seen as having an attitude problem and not toeing the line. When too much pressure is put on them, and then there's the meltdown. Yeah. And then there's other stuff that comes with that. So what are some of the stuff, and I, I'm not going to name them, but what are some of the stuff that maybe my daughter might present and other young people may present when they have to contain what is being put on them and they've got autistic traits? It can be anything from just hiding away. So a particular student I can think of, when things get too much for her, she will just hide. She's not... She's not doing it for attention, which is very often one of the things that gets bandied about. She will find somewhere to go where nobody can really find her because it's too much. Or it can be the other extreme where they do play up directly in front of you. And again, I can think of a, a female right now. I can think of quite a few of them actually who do that and you do get frustrated with them. It's very easy in the day when you're just trying to go about your business and you keep stumbling across these same girls doing the same thing, um, it is very easy to just think, oh, it's just all for attention. It's just, oh, it's so pathetic. But you have to look underneath that. Who, in, who would do that? Who would want to miss out on, on their education? I, I don't believe anybody genuinely does. And I know that's the case as well, because I've seen some, some kids that have been completely disengaged and when they've just been coaxed a little bit and given that direct attention and, and basically been told, it's all right, I can see you. I can see you and I can see what you need. When they're given that, they engage. So they come round quite quickly. So, so I, I don't believe that any child really doesn't want to be involved. I think they all do. But I think, unfortunately, the way that the school system is, it just doesn't fit everybody. No. You're always going to have some that are going to be completely disengaged. What what can schools do? Not just the school that we work in, but if you if you was to oversee this, what can schools do to make it easier for SEN students to be able to engage? What helps? What what do you find helps? I mean, the dream would be that every classroom is SEN friendly. So you know that that every classroom has. Um, the instructions on the board the whole way through the lesson that every classroom has each task differentiated to every single level that there possibly could be in that classroom um, and, and quite often uh, I feel so, so I feel really sorry for teachers because that's a massive massive piece of work and that's why I don't teach <laughs> because I don't think I'm capable of doing that and so I, I again it's not any it, that's nothing against those that are out there trying to do it it is a huge piece of work but I always come back to once you do that piece of work, 
you would just make life so much easier for yeah. so many of those kids in your classroom that actually the hard work would be so worth it, not just for the kids, but for you as well. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the dream. I think talking about it really openly is also something yeah. that we need to do. It shouldn't be hidden away. I mean, as I said before, I've worked in this school for 15 years and I, I've noticed that the, the SEN team is always kept quite separate. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is elements where we're not always considered to know enough because yeah. we're not teachers to necessarily give our opinions or to, or even to give advice. Some people will fight against that because they don't know that we do understand what, what the role is. Yeah. Just because we don't do it, we've seen the battle that you're, yeah. you're having to fight. And I think that's a shame as well. I think if everybody could work together, as opposed to feel that it's a criticism, which sometimes yeah. I think some people do, then that would make a massive difference. Um, something that we've been doing in our school as well is that we have this SENT that our head teacher gets involved with, and we invite parents in, parents, carers, whatever family members are involved in that child predominantly we invite them to come in and we sit together and we talk right. about the interventions yeah. that we're offering we talk about what we can offer to do referrals we can make to what agencies etc we've not had a massive uptake on that which i think is a real shame because when you think of the percentage of our school that are sen yeah it's a shame more people aren't getting involved um but but we you know this is what you need it just needs to be out there it's there it's not going away no I mean, before uh, my own daughter started showing symptoms, even though both my sons show, show signs of SEN, I didn't really understand SEN. It's something that I just dealt with for myself. I was like, oh, that's what's going on for me. It's only now that somebody like you opened it up for me and opened up all these doors. So I think having this kind of platform for people, hearing people like us talk about it, will make people think, oh, actually, actually, that's, that, I understand that. I relate to that. Do you know what I'm saying? What would you yeah. say to, to parents or adults who get quite frustrated with children with SEM? Because I tell you this now, until I had to homeschool my daughter, I thought I was all right. And then trying to homeschool a, a child with autism until she gets diagnosed, no, it's not for me. So what do you do? How can parents or adults, I come to you all the time, what can we do to deal with that frustration? Is it okay? Yeah. Got, you, you know you're gonna get frustrated obviously we all get frustrated and it is okay and I think the sad thing is and something I've also noticed over the years of doing this is that quite often the parents are quite isolated they don't necessarily have a support network and that breaks my heart and that's actually where the idea of the SENT come from yeah. because for so long I was noticing when when we were having meetings with these parents and, and often mums because you know dad's working or whatever setup but it is predominantly mums that I see yeah. they're often so isolated you know you'll get the occasional one that will rock up with a sister or, or a mum but more often than not it's it's you and this one person that's managing that on their own yeah and I think I'm I can't I can't control that there's just not enough if the, if there are groups out there they're not they're not out there enough. They're not, I, I don't know they're there. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that really needs to be done. There's been mums that I've spoken to and I've said to them, you really should blog. You should do something because you've been there. You've done that. I mean, I can think of one mum in particular who just knew exactly 
how to handle the situation she was faced with and very often but not because she just naturally knew but because no. she'd worked process over such a long time and I think that's got to be one of the saddest things there's just not enough of a support team around these families and so we try to do that for our our families as much as possible and I hope that I hope they know that yeah I mean putting things out here will get people talking there might be other schools that might come back to us and go hang on I do this and you and you'll be like oh we'll try that but for me whether she's diagnosed or not and she's literally weeks of being diagnosed isolation is the biggest thing because there's a lot of times I text you and I'm like I'm a rubbish mum that's it I'm rubbish and you're like just stop and I guarantee you that lots of mums are sitting there going oh I'm the worst I'm literally I can't get her to put a pair of socks on so hearing you say that it's okay not to be okay if you wasn't okay that's the way I see it you know we all have our, we all have our days where it just seems too big and I think it's really important for kids to to know that as well, as long yeah. as it's done in a very controlled, calm manner. Yeah. But children have to understand because that's part of the, the learning process. Yeah. And, and obviously, as we know, for autistic children, it is very hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and understand how the way you're behaving is impacting on that other person. Yeah. So I think when you're having days like that, once you've had your little breakdown or whatever it needs to look like, you've screamed into your pillow or you've run around your garden or whatever, I think it is important to have that conversation with your child and say, look, today you made me feel like this. How does it make you feel to hear me say that? And have that dialogue. And you do that. And that's really important. It's important for parents to understand that they're learning also. We're learning together, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Every parent. Definitely. Every parent. Yeah. Um, I don't really know the answer to this, but is there or do you think, is there a link between trauma and SEM? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I don't, I mean, I'm not qualified enough to say exactly how that works. No. 100%. Um, because, you know, what is it, adverse childhood experiences? They are going to have an impact upon the neurological development of that child. And so, yeah, it goes without saying there is connection. And then, of course, then that, the other issue is that trauma for every single individual is, it can be very different. It's, it's mad, isn't it? It's just too big for me to like. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, but, but this is the fact of life, isn't it? It could be that some of our, I think that sometimes clouds the issue as well, because we can look to some kids, especially in, in our school, and you can think, wow, you know, that child has been through some really awful kind of existence and, and how on earth have they managed to come out and they're just getting on and they're getting by. But just because that person has, and I hear this quite a lot from, from my generation or around my generation, well, we didn't have any of that when I was younger. Yeah, we was right. Yeah. yeah. But just because some, some come through unscathed and, and it doesn't have long-term impact on them, it doesn't mean that others won't. So I think that's something else that we are beginning to understand um, and, and how we address that. I don't know. It'll, it'll unfold over time, I suppose. It will. There's a lot of work being done on ACEs, um, adverse child um, experiences, and I think that more people are looking into it. So what I hope is part of what I'm doing, talking like this, is that maybe, maybe people that work within trauma will link with somebody like you in SEM and go, actually, can we have a look at that? That's my hope in any way. We're really lucky. I mean, we're supported by a lot of external agencies um, and they're incredible and we get a lot of training. I mean, even during lockdown, we've been having weekly Zoom training by one of the external agencies that that support us. So we are constantly developing our knowledge base 
um, and one of the recent one, ones that we did was around trauma. And, and the crazy thing is, so often the same types of intervention, the same changes within the school environment will work for everybody. Okay. So once we do acknowledge it and once we do say, yep, yeah, it's, it's not going to change, yeah. then I think to make those changes within the school environment, wouldn't, it wouldn't take that much. No. But then I'm not a school leader. I don't know. What hey, am I? You should be, but you're not. <laughs> what made you want to be involved in the job that you do? What led to it? I don't, I don't think you knew that's what you wanted to be when you grew up. And, you know, so I don't know. But... What made you become involved and what makes you, because the fire that you have for SEN scares me. When you go off on one, I'm like, everyone's <laughs> like, oh, okay. So what, where does that come from, Bex? Like, why do you love it so much? I have no idea. Honest to God, I'll tell you <laughs> the truth. I took the job because it fitted around my, my eldest. That is the fact of it. And when I started as a TA, I was doing things like running handwriting interventions or set reading scheme programs and I never really thought it was going to amount to much else but then a role within the team come up to work with kids that had speech language and social communication difficulties and then I remembered my partner as you know I've been with him forever when we was kids he had this absolutely debilitating stutter it was awful yeah and I remembered how it used to make me feel to watch him struggle with that and the, the grief he used to get from friends, so-called friends, the, the, the way that he spoke. And I think that was just it. I kind of made the connection between that emotional response. Yeah. And it just grew from there. And the more that I worked with other agencies, I just wanted to know more. And I just want to know more. I don't, I don't ever want to stop. I, I revisit my own understanding all the time. It drives me mad drives me mad and I will wake up in the middle of the night and I will question something that I've said or done or or the way that we're running a particular intervention and wonder whether the best outcomes will come from that and I think that's what you need you you do need that and luckily I work with I mean particularly I work with one of our very close friends very closely and she, well she's so patient with me because I must drive her mad but that's what you need you need a team of people that can balance one another out yeah um, yeah, I went off the point a bit then. So yeah, that's how I got, <laughs> that's how I got into SEM by accident. This, I, I knew the answer to that. Obviously, I know the answer to how it happened. But the reason I asked that question is there's probably lots of people out there that have got all the skills. The mum that we're talking about, there's people out there that aren't trained as teachers and all of that. And I wanted to make the point that you was just a mum that just rocked up who needed a job, but suddenly went, hang on a minute, I, I, I relate to that. So anyone out there who's got the skills can start developing them. They haven't got to go, but you haven't gone on this extensive training. It's built up over time, hasn't it? Yeah. And that is also something we do promote to our parents. There yeah. are lots of courses out there. Although I don't know, I don't know how many support networks there are. There are lots of courses out there. Yeah. And actually that will then open the door to support networks. I can imagine that once you start doing this training, you then build your own links with people. So that is something that we do promote. We, we try and encourage our parents to do. But then also they've, they've got their own battles that they're dealing with. And so we know it's a big ask. It's, it's hard. It, it's not easy. But I definitely would encourage anyone, if you're the same as you've done, if you do feel that you're dealing with something within the house, start learning. Absolutely. It just will make things easier for you. And people should reach out to their schools. I mean, our school's quite unique. Like, 
caring for children is what we excel in. But reaching out to you and then reaching out, you know, to my daughter's going to be secondary school, they're there, aren't they? Staff are, are like bursting to tell what they know, aren't they? You are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always take it as a massive compliment. When a parent actually opens up and says, I'm struggling, yeah. I take that as a huge compliment yeah. because it's such an act of trust. As a parent myself, to say to one of my daughter's teachers, like, I'm concerned about her learning, I think there could be barriers there that I've not identified, it took a long time for me to ever sort of verbalise that. Yeah. So when somebody does that for me, I, I do, I take it as a huge compliment. I'm, I'm in, then. I'm in. You ain't going to shake me off. I'm probably really annoying, actually. But <laughs> hey-ho. <laughs> I don't think you're annoying. I think you're just a, a fact-teller. Once you get going, you are told what you need to know. That's what I found when I've gone to you as a professional, as a colleague about the student, because I've been able to come to you and go, I, I don't really understand this. But I've come to you as, as, as a best friend and gone, I don't understand this. You, you just come with facts. There's no emotion in it. You're like, no, this is what's happening. And I think that's what's important dealing with SEN. You need the facts, the emotion out of it, don't you? You need to know. Yeah, and that has taken, I'm not, I'm not brilliant at that. I've had to do a lot of work on that myself. I, one, of the, one of the ladies who I used to, who used to be my boss, used to say to me, you know, just stop having so many, stop emotionally responding. <laughs> so it, it does take a lot. And I, and I won't always, I won't always not emotionally respond. So I do have to check myself quite regularly or come into your little cupboard of an office and jump up and down and, and shout. But that's, that's what we're about though yeah. if we didn't have that fire in our belly then we wouldn't be doing the job we do i don't know becky i don't uh, emotionally respond to anything to be fair <laughs> okay you keep telling yourself that <laughs> you you work we talk about a lot about young people and students and stuff like that but you also work within an environment when there's a lot of adults with sen needs so <laughs> If we talk about, if we just look at me, what, what barriers do you see for me? So my, my dyslexia can be disgustingly awful. And well, I'll let you tell me. So what barriers do you see for me at work with my SEN needs? I don't see them as barriers. And this is something that this bring, you know, this whole concept of neurodiversity. I don't see what you see as a barrier, as a barrier. Oops. You see things so differently to the way I see things. And I love that because you need that kind of perspective, especially in what you do. I mean, it just astounds me. You can call something from a hundred yards. Do you know what I mean? And, and whereas the rest of us just see it for face value, you'll dig and you'll go underneath that. So I can't say that I see anything as a barrier. I look, sometimes I look at your blogs and I want to change your grammar a little bit. <laughs> But again, it's not a barrier because it's it's you. And I think as well that just it's such an incredible role model for other for children and adults that don't think they should do certain things because they've been diagnosed or they're undiagnosed. You own it. So are you saying that it's okay for people like me or with autism that we can just walk around being ourselves? Is that what you're saying? It's not okay, it just should be. It just you know, there is no okay or anything, it just should be because this is we're never going to get any better I, I just think a society will just will just thrive when people can just be who they are oh please i'm trying to pigeonhole themselves into a certain way of being it's just never going to work because you're always 
you're always going to have a, a, an element of society that is just breaking their heart to be something they're not. And that's just not okay. So yes, be yourself. What do you think? I mean, I, I've said this to most people, obviously you didn't know Blondie, but you know of her. I talk about her enough. What would have been different for Blondie if school had been different? So it's completely different. You've got to remember, we were talking, you know, I'm 40, we're talking about from when I was 12. But what, what would have been different if she had got what she had needed at that point? It's so hard to say in it because as, as you and I know, there are some that do slip through the cracks mm -hmm. and that's always going to happen. But I just think, I just think you probably always was the person that you, that you are now. And if you had just had the right people to reach out to you and say, actually, you don't want to be doing this. Yeah. You don't want to be doing this. You just need a different direction in life. You just need the support. To, to, to understand what's going on in your head and, and to have that support at home um, and just have somewhere else to go where you didn't feel judged, where you didn't feel that people had already written you off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you would have just, you wouldn't have had to go for a thing you'd gone for. You know, I get quite angry about it. I, I hate the idea of any, any child being out there and suffering the way that you did because it's so unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. Um, so yeah, life would have been, I, I like to think life would have been very different for you. If you had been in our school now, oh. you would have had you, you would have had me, you would have had, you know, our team, <laughs> our wives, wheels, you know, Kerry, all of them, Tom, they would have been there for you. And it just breaks my heart that, that there are still kids that occasionally slip through, but we're getting better. We're on it. I think that if Blondie had gone to our school and had us as a team, oof, she she would have never suffered for as long as she did. Yeah. Stuff would have still happened, but it yeah. wouldn't have gone on for as long as it did because we would have stopped it because that's what we do. We wouldn't have happened in the same way. And it's even just the little things. Yeah, we may not catch everything straight away, but it's just, for some kids, it's just knowing that there are a friendly face. There's somebody that day that's going to know your name. They're going to ask you how they are and they, they genuinely want to know how you are. And even if they can't or you feel, and I should think that's quite hard for a lot of our kids because they have managed for a long time on their own and feeling as if they're invisible. Yeah. But even if you don't believe that that person can help you, and I know sometimes you, you face that, um, it's just knowing that they'll constantly be there and eventually you'll let them in and things yeah. will be different. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get with, through with Blondie's people. So the reason, like I said at the beginning, you're here is because if you had been who you are now to Blondie when she was younger, life would have been different. But also, as part of Blondie's people, who you are for me now makes my life a lot different. Without you, I, there's loads of stuff I wouldn't be able to do. And I, she hates this. What I'm doing right now, she hates that I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm going to say it. Yeah. What, what, what Blondie also needed, forget SEN, if you had been 14 and I had been 14 and we had been friends, I think life would have been different for me because you're one of the few people that wants the best for me. Nothing to do with you. You never try and get nothing out of me. Whatever you do for me is usually for me. And so for that is really why you're one of Blondie's people because I think you've always been my friend, if that makes sense. I, I honestly, it looks like I'm doing it selflessly, but you don't know how much you bring to me. Now this is turning into a bit of a love <laughs> session, but... It's the truth. And this is going back to what I said before about the fact that your SEN isn't a barrier. 
the way you look at things, you, you kick me up the backside regularly and you do, you know, we, we, we didn't come from exactly the same backgrounds, but we both come from working class London families and there was no, it was, you know, my parents did know I'd do all right and they had an expectation that I would always do my best, but you know, we was never, there was never a, a massive expectation to do university or go on to higher education or whatever. But at the same time, it, I've lost the point that I was trying to make. I'm just, what, all I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is that it is, no, it's gone. <laughs> you never know, right? She sounds mental. The woman's got a law degree. She's just mad. <laughs> oh my God, I am. And I'm, look, I'm sweating out. This is ridiculous. I can't remember the point I was trying to make. <laughs> what I'll say to you is... about 12 o'clock tonight and go, I remember what it was. <laughs> my point that you took over was, is that the most important why you're one of Blondie's people is, is that you're a true friend. But I think you would have been a true friend back then as well. You would never have looked at Blondie and gone, uh, nah, I, she's horrible. <laughs> to make so the fact that we weren't exactly <laughs> the fact that we weren't exactly in the same place at yeah. that age i think we would have understood each other absolutely and and fundamentally that's because we would accept each other yeah. and that's so and that comes back to that whole point of yes people should be who they are because it can only make things better yay yeah. i made my point <laughs> I ask everyone the same question, so I'm going to ask you, what, if anything, have you learned about yourself in lockdown or about others? Um, what have I learned? What have I learned? Oh my God. Have you learned anything? Oh, definitely. I'll tell you what I've, I've learned. learned. Go on. I've learned that there is no, I shouldn't put limitations on myself. I don't know why lockdown, I think lockdown's just given me that time to kind of be reflective. Yes. Um, so I've definitely learned that during lockdown. Um, I've learned that I can fill my time with eating stuff <laughs> far more than I should. Um, I've learned other stuff as well, but yeah, I can't really verbalise it right now. To tell you what I've learned, and this goes to our whole group, I've learned that if you really love someone or they're really your friend or whatever, lockdown, distance, nothing will change that. Because me and you and our group, we started out as work colleagues, but we've had the best time during lockdown via Zoom and phone calls. Like the, uh, today, this morning, we were sharing memories. So for me, I've learned that how important it is for me to have real friends, not just, just seasoned friends. To have long-term friends is very important for anyone's mental health. Definitely, definitely. And just to be able to have those memories, it's all part of who we are. And it is part of a growth. It's part of an individual growth as well. Having good friendships. It gives you the confidence to be who you are. Becky, you've made it all the way through the interview. Well, apart from that complete... It's staying in. It's staying in. They've got to know. No, no, no. They've got to know. I look like such a middle-aged menopausal nutter. Don't leave this bit in the graph. I am. I am. <laughs> Becky, it's been brilliant interviewing you with your crazy, sweaty, menopausal self. Say goodbye to everyone. <laughs> yes. So, I'm Kendra Houseman from Out of the Shadows and I'm interviewing people for uh, Blondie's People. People that inspire me now, but also would have been good to be there for Blondie when she was younger. 
Um, today I'm talking to my friend who's a little bit nervous. So who are you and what are you doing here? Such a big question. Who am I? Why am I here is the question. I'm a little bit in awe because I've been watching you do these and I've seen some of the incredible people that you've been talking to. So yeah, that's why I'm a little bit nervous. So I'm Becky. I work at a local secondary school in Thanet. Um, it's quite a deprived area and I work in the SCN department. I'm the intervention coordinator. Okay, so I work with you. I know what, I, what you do, but if I didn't know you, what, what does that look like? What kind of things do you have to do? Okay, so according to my job role, <laughs> what I'm supposed to do is identify the appropriate interventions for students in accordance to what their diagnosed SEN is, to what their yeah. diagnosed special educational needs are. Um, very often the students don't have diagnosed needs, so we do have to kind of work through a filtration process of figuring out what would fit better for them. Um, so an intervention will be a small group or one-to-one -one based situation where they work with one of our incredible teaching assistants who then deliver a set programme of work to try and fill those gaps in their understanding. Do you ever have to make the programme of work up or do you get it from somewhere or do you... Oh, I make it up all the time, all oh. the time. I've actually made up with a, a colleague who left quite a long time ago, we made up a three-year rolling programme for teaching kids social communication skills. It's not because there's a lack of resources out there. There are some incredible resources out there and there are some incredibly generous professionals who share their stuff yeah. on, on a wide forum. So you can find things, but I just think... SEN is such a individualised issue that it just works for me very often to just revisit these things and, and write them. Make it more bespoke. It's very bespoke. I've seen the stuff that you do and it, and it is bespoke. Now, before we go any further, because Becky's very worried that people are going to say, is she a specialist? So here, here we are, right? To me, Becky is a specialist. It's who I've always gone to and always will go to. And before we even get started, this woman knows what she's talking about and she's going to break it down, I hope, on a very easy level. So we'll come back to me a little bit. Um, I had SCN all my life, I, I would imagine, I don't know. But I didn't get diagnosed with um, ADHD until I was 24 and I didn't get diagnosed with being dyslexic until I was 21. I displayed it all in school. And the two doctors that eventually dealt with me said that the problem could have been because it presents different in females. Mm -hmm. true not true like how does that sit with you and what's your thoughts on that um it doesn't sit well with me but it's it's a fact yeah um and it is something that i think is getting better yeah. slowly so i've been doing this for a very very long time now i've worked at the school i'm at for 15 years and when i first started zoning in in particular around social communication difficulties the ratio to of males to female that were being diagnosed was it was something ridiculous like 20 to 1 really it was absolutely ridiculous they, those figures have dropped yeah. so we are getting better at identifying females in that particular area yeah. but still the ratio is far higher males will be identified quicker that's adhd asc dyslexia across the board so so it's still disproportionate and that and that's often what the answer is well females present differently well if they've been saying females present differently since you was 21 and somebody first said to you it's probably because you present differently then why the hell haven't we reconsidered our diagnostic criteria 
to be more suitable for females in the way they present. That's something that I get quite riled up about <laughs> because I, I just understand. <laughs> it just seems, and I'm not in any position to move anything like that forward. And there are lots of things that I don't know that could be going on to, to address that. But I do know that it's not happening enough that we are seeing any of those changes. What problems can that cause? I mean, I'm thinking of one student in particular, but obviously we can't name them. What student does that cause? What problems does that cause if if a girl isn't diagnosed and has to sort of go through school to to year nine, say, and they haven't got a formal diagnosis? What pressure does that put you in your role? I mean, it just goes so far. It's that's just so massive. It can be something as as some of the, the girls that we get in when they come into year seven have gone the whole way through primary without being diagnosed yeah. and that's primary is a very cushy little area I mean obviously they're expected to work to their levels don't get me wrong but because it's a very safe predictable kind of living um it just doesn't come through so that's no blame on the primary school yeah. obviously we have to then hit the ground running because by about term two of them being in secondary they're flagging it's all going dreadfully wrong and that very often presents especially i will keep harping back to autism because that's kind of where where my my area lies but yeah. um especially around friendships and so then you have this constant battle between little groups of friends getting into issues or you have these girls that are just completely isolated and have got nobody to spend any time with and that can overspill in a lot of different ways so it may well be that they then start trying to identify with groups of friends that aren't necessarily the right group of friends for them yep or they become more and more isolated um, and then they become identified by some of the kids as being a bit of an easy target and it, it just can spill over into so many different areas. So then by the time you get to year nine, which obviously by then all of the hormones are kicking in, yeah. it can be really dangerous. And you know, especially in, in some of the areas you work in, these, these girls can get themselves involved with things that they should have, with it. nobody's got any business being involved in, but they should just never yeah. have been around that, that kind of atmosphere or environment. And sometimes they're not aware of the danger, are they? Even though we talk with them same pupils, they're just like oblivious to it. And, and you're right, autism is where you're autism champion. That's where your specialities lie. For me, when my own daughter, who's still going through the process, she's undiagnosed. She's undiagnosed SEM. But if we want to break it down, there's speech and communication before we get there. The fact that I can say it their speech and communication has come from you, not from no one else. There's only one other person that's helped me understand my daughter's SEN needs, and that's a lady called Sophie. But you're the one that has shown me everything. So tell me about autism in girls, because I didn't even know that's what was going on really until I spoke to you. So how does that look for people? Um, I mean, it really is. I think the older the, the female gets as well it, it presents quite differently so very often with the younger girls you do notice that they are either as i said before circulating in groups of people mm -hmm. where they don't truly understand what's going on or they're very isolated they're getting into trouble in class one of the big things that i notice is that very often they're written off quite quickly as being either arrogant or disengaged naughty. or too <laughs> yeah, naughty naughty that is always or just you know, they're kind of viewed as being a bit of a madam or they're a little bit pedantic because they don't want to toe the line 
because there is this expectation of how females will and it, I don't care what anyone says it's not a spoken expectation there you know it's people talk about the fact that females do better in school so there does seem to be this expectation that most females will toe the line and behave a particular way so when you get that female who can't can't just engage the way that they're expected to they then get that label within the classroom um, and so then they've also got that issue within the classroom they've got that issue within their social environment they become more and more um, isolated and they internalize and then it can go down the route of self-harm. Yeah. There, to me, there seems to be a massive correlation between a lot of our female students self-harming, yeah. um, the rise in mental health among our female students, um, issues with mental health. Um, there's also the question of, uh, of gender. A lot of the females do start questioning their place, who they are, their identity. Uh, and for a lot of them, that identity is, actually identity is the key word. What is my identity in my social environment? What is my identity as an individual? Where do I what, what we see quite a lot, don't we, Becky, in the work that we do, is we see girls that will then sometimes go online and start drawing towards other people who, who aren't in their immediate circle. And a lot of the times, then people are looking to cause harm, are looking to exploit. And then breaking that down to somebody who doesn't see the same social barriers we do can be difficult, can't it? Definitely. I mean, we've had to do it. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking because these are, these individuals think that they found, they found their people. Yeah. They think that they found people that, that are interested in them and they don't understand that they're not, they're not interested in what you think they're interested in. No, they haven't got a clue. In another interview, it's not gone out yet, but I speak and um, the person says people don't want to have to look at the fact that SEN students are at high risk of sexual exploitation. It makes people feel very uncomfortable. It's, it does anyway. They're like, oh, CSE. But the thought that our, our autistic girls and boys are, could be exposed in that way, people, it almost, it seems to me, don't want to acknowledge it. And we see the outcome of that, of, of people that can be quite damaged because people are doing this, aren't they? Definitely. And you can see in the, in the justice system um, oh. how, many, how many young offenders are actually undiagnosed SEM, whether that's ASD, ADHD, dyslexia, whatever you know it, it's a high proportion so obviously it's not just us that are seeing this happening it's going on so why aren't we addressing it why are we just treating every individual the same way as we said at the very beginning SEN is very individualized you have to target that individual not just the need you have to make it fit that that individual person and it's frustrating because the work that we do with these students we, we are doing good work, but we know in other areas, in other different schools, in different areas, SEN is not even really at the forefront, is it? And, and that's very frustrating when we're trying to work with these young people. Definitely, especially when they are young people that then transfer to our school. And again, we've got a lot of ground that we have to try and make up. And you've also then got to unpick, and that's something that we don't always acknowledge. Well, because we go through the process so often. That we kind of just get on with it but when you step back and think about it when these young people come to us we've then got to unpick what their belief of who they are yeah their lack of worthiness their, their identity yeah. so again that's a that's a massive piece of work there's another side to it as well that we have to deal with i have to deal with my own child and i know you deal with when these, these girls that are seen as having an attitude problem and not towing the line, 
when too much pressure is put on them and then there's the meltdown. Yeah. And then there's other stuff that comes with that. So what are some of the stuff, and I, I'm not going to name them, but what are some of the stuff that maybe my daughter might present and other young people may present when they have to contain what is being put on them and they've got autistic traits? It can be anything from just hiding away. So a particular student I can think of, when things get too much for her, she will just hide. She's not she's not doing it for attention which is very often one of the things that gets banded about she will find somewhere to go when nobody can really find her because it's too much or it can be the other extreme where they do play up directly in front of you and again i can think of a, a female right now <laughs> I, can who does, I can think of quite a few of them actually who do that and you do get frustrated with them it's very easy in the day when you're just trying to go about your business and you keep stumbling across these same girls doing the same thing, um, it is very easy to just think, oh, it's just all for attention. It's just, oh, it's so pathetic. But you have to look underneath that. Who, in, who would do that? Who would want to miss out on, on their education? I, I don't believe anybody genuinely does. And I know that's the case as well, because I've seen some, some kids that have been completely disengaged and when they've just been coaxed a little bit and given that direct attention and, and basically been told, it's all right, I can see you. I can see you and I can see what you need. When they're given that, they engage. So they come round quite quickly. So, so I, I don't believe that any child really doesn't want to be involved. I think they all do. But I think, unfortunately, the way that the school system is, it just doesn't fit everybody. No. You're always going to have some that are going to be completely disengaged. What, what can schools do? Not just a school that we work in, but if you, if you was to oversee this, what can schools do to make it easier for SEN students to be able to engage? What helps? What, what do you find helps? I mean, the dream would be that every classroom is SEN friendly. So, you know, that, that every classroom has um, the instructions on the board the whole way through the lesson, that every classroom has each task differentiated to every single level that they possibly could be in that classroom. Um, and, and quite often, uh, I, feel so, so I feel really sorry for teachers because that's a massive, massive piece of work. And that's why I don't teach. <laughs> because I don't think I'm capable of doing that. And so, I, I, again, it's not any... It, that's nothing against those that are out there trying to do it. It is a huge piece of work. But I always come back to once you do that piece of work, you would just make life so much easier for yeah. so many of those kids in your classroom that actually the hard work would be so worth it, not just for the kids, but for you as well. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the dream. I think talking about it really openly is also something yeah. that we need to do. It shouldn't be hidden away. I mean, as I said before, I've worked in this school for 15 years and I... I've noticed that the, the SEN team is always kept quite separate. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is elements where we're not always considered to know enough because yeah. we're not teaching to necessarily give our opinions or to, or even to give advice. Some people will fight against that because they don't know that we do understand what, what the role is. Yeah. Just because we don't do it, we've seen the battle that you're, yeah. you're having to fight. And I think that's a shame as well. I think if everybody could work together, as opposed to feel that it's a criticism, which sometimes yeah. I think some people do, then that would make a massive difference. 
Um, something that we've been doing in our school as well is that we have this SEN team that our head teacher gets involved with and we invite parents in, parents, carers, whatever family members are involved in that child predominantly, we invite them to come in and we sit together and we talk right. about the interviews yeah. that we're offering. We talk about what we can offer to do, referrals we can make to what agencies, etc. We've not had a massive uptake on that, which I think is a real shame because when you think of the percentage of our school that are SEN, yeah. shame more people aren't getting involved. Um, but, but we, you know, this is what you need. It just needs to be out there. It's there. It's not going away. No. I mean, before uh, my own daughter started showing symptoms, even though both my sons showed, showed signs of SEN, I didn't really understand SEN. It's something that I just dealt with for myself. I was like, oh, that's what's going on for me. It's only now that somebody like you opened it up for me and opened up all these doors. So I think having this kind of platform for people, hearing people like us talk about it, will make people think, oh, actually, actually, that's, that, I understand that. I relate to that. Do you know what I'm saying? What would you yeah. say to, to parents or adults who get quite frustrated with children with SEM? Because I tell you this now, until I had to homeschool my daughter, I thought I was all right. And then trying to homeschool a, daughter, a child with autism until she gets diagnosed, no, it's not for me. So what do you do? Yeah. How can parents or adults, I come to you all the time, what can we do to deal with that frustration? Is it okay? Yeah. Got, you, you know you're gonna get frustrated obviously we all get frustrated and it is okay and I think the sad thing is and something I've also noticed over the years of doing this is that quite often the parents are quite isolated they don't necessarily have a support network and that breaks my heart and that's actually where the idea of the SENT come from yeah. because for so long I was noticing when when we were having meetings with these parents and, and often mums because, you know, dad's working or whatever set up, but it is predominantly mums that I see, yep. they're often so isolated. You know, you'll get the occasional one that will rock up with a sister or, or a mum, but more often than not, it's, it's you and this one person that's managing that on their own. Yeah. And I think, I'm, I, can't, I can't control that. There's just not enough. If, the, if there are groups out there, they're not, they're not out there enough. They're not, I, I don't know they're there. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's something that really needs to be done. There's been mums that I've spoken to and I've said to them, you really should blog. You should do something because you've been there. You've done that. I mean, I can think of one mum in particular who just knew exactly how to handle the situation she was faced with. And very often, but not because she just naturally knew, but because no. she'd worked process over such a long time and I think that's got to be one of the saddest things there's just not enough of a support team around these families and so we try to do that for our our yeah. families as much as possible and I hope that I hope they know that yeah I mean putting things out here will get people talking there might be other schools that might come back to us and go hang on I'll do this and you and you'll be like oh we'll try that but for me whether she's diagnosed or not and she's literally weeks off being diagnosed isolation is the biggest thing because there's a lot of times I text you and I'm like I'm a rubbish mum that's it I'm rubbish and you're like just stop and I guarantee you that <laughs> lots of mums are sitting there going oh I'm the worst I'm literally I can't get her to put a pair of socks on so hearing you say that it's okay not to be okay it wouldn't be right if you wasn't okay that's the way I see it you know we all have our we all have our days where it just seems too big and I think it's really important for kids to to know that as well as long yeah. as it's done in a very controlled calm manner yeah. but children have to understand because that's part of the, the learning process 
Yeah. And, and obviously, as we know, for autistic children, it is very hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and understand how the way you're behaving is impacting on that other person. Yeah. So I think when you're having days like that, once you've had your little breakdown or whatever it needs to look like, you've screamed into your pillow or you've run around your garden or whatever, I think it is important to have that conversation with your child and say, look, today you made me feel like this. How does it make you feel to hear me say that? And yeah. have that dialogue, and you do that, and that's really important. It's important for parents to understand that they're learning also. We're learning together, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, every parent, definitely. Every parent, yeah. Um, I don't really know the answer to this, but do you, is there, or do you think, is there a link between trauma and SEM? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I don't, I mean, I'm not qualified enough to say exactly how that works. No. 100%. Um, because, you know, what is it, adverse childhood experiences, they are going to have an impact upon the neurological development of that child. And so, yeah, it goes without saying there is connection. And then, of course, then that the other issue is that trauma for every single individual is it can be very different. It's, it's mad, isn't it? It's just too big for me to like. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, but, but this is the fact of life, isn't it? It could be that some of our, I think that sometimes clouds the issue as well, because we can look to some kids, especially in, in our school, and you can think, wow, you know, that child has been through some really awful kind of existence and, and how on earth have they managed to come out and they're just getting on and they're getting yeah. by. But just because that person has, and I hear this quite a lot from, from my generation or around my generation, well, we didn't have any of that when I was younger. Yeah, we was right. Yeah. yeah. But just because some, some come through unscathed and, and it doesn't have long-term impact on them, it doesn't mean that others won't. So I think that's something else that we are beginning to understand um, and, and how we address that. I don't know. It will it'll unfold over time, I suppose. It will. There's a lot of work being done on ACEs, um, adverse child um, experiences, and I think that more people are looking into it. So what I hope is part of what I'm doing, talking like this, is that maybe, maybe people that work within trauma will link with somebody like you in SEM and go, actually, can we have a look at that? That's my hope in any way. We're really lucky. I mean, we're supported by a lot of external agencies um, and they're incredible and we get a lot of training. I mean, even during lockdown, we've been having weekly Zoom training by one of the external agencies that, that support us. So we are constantly developing our knowledge base. Um, and one of the recent one, ones that we did was around trauma. And, and the crazy thing is, so often the same types of intervention the same changes within the school environment will work for everybody. Okay. So once we do acknowledge it, and once we do say, yep, yeah, it's, it's not going to change, yeah. then I think to make those changes within the school environment, wouldn't, it wouldn't take that much. No. But then I'm not a school leader. I don't know. What hey, am I? You should be, but you're not. <laughs> what made you want to be involved in the job that you do? What led to it? I don't, I don't think you knew that's what you wanted to be when you grew up. And, you know, so I don't know. But what made you become involved and what makes you... Because the fire that you have for SEN scares me. When you go off on one, I'm like... Everyone's like, oh, okay. So what, where does that come from, Bex? Like, why do you love it so much? I have no idea. Honest to God, I'll tell you the truth. I took the job because it fitted around my, my eldest. That is the fact of it. And when I started as a TA, I was doing things like running handwriting interventions or set reading scheme programs. And I never really thought it was gonna to amount to much else. 
but then a role within the team come up to work with kids that had speech language and social communication difficulties and then I remembered my partner as you know I've been with him forever when we was kids he had this absolutely debilitating stutter it was awful yeah and I remembered how it used to make me feel to watch him struggle with that and the, the grief he used to get from friends, so-called friends, the, the, the way that he spoke. And I think that was just it. I kind of made the connection between that emotional response. Yeah. And it just grew from there. And the more that I worked with other agencies, I just wanted to know more. And I just want to know more. I don't, I don't ever want to stop. I, I revisit my own understanding all the time. It drives me mad. Drives me mad, and I will wake up in the middle of the night and I will question something that I've said or done, or or the way that we're running a particular intervention, and wonder whether the best outcomes will come from that. And I think that's what you need. You you do need that. And luckily, I work with. I mean, particularly, I work with one of our very close friends, very closely. And she, well, she's so patient with me. <laughs> I must drive her mad. But that's what you need. You need a team of people that can balance one another out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went off the point a bit then. So yeah, that's how I got, <laughs> that's how I got into FCM by accident. This, I, I knew the answer to that, obviously. I know the answer to how it happened. But the reason I asked that question is there's probably lots of people out there that have got all the skills. The mum that we're talking about, there's people out there that aren't trained as teachers and all of that. And I wanted to make the point that you was just a mum that just rocked up who needed a job, but suddenly went, hang on a minute, I, I, I relate to that. So anyone out there who's got the skills can start developing them. They haven't got to go, but you haven't gone on this extensive training. It's built up over time, hasn't it? Yeah. And that is also something we do promote to our parents. There yeah. are lots of courses out there. Although I don't know, I don't know how many support networks there are. There are lots of courses out there. Yeah. And actually that will then open the door to support networks. I can imagine that once you start doing this training, you then build your own links with people. So that is something that we do promote. We, we try and encourage our parents to do. But then also they've, they've got their own battles that they're dealing with. And so we know it's a big ask. It's, it's hard. It, it's not easy. But I definitely would encourage anyone, if you're the same as you've done, if you do feel that you're dealing with something within the house, start learning. Absolutely. It just will make things easier for you. And people should reach out to their schools. I mean, our, our school's quite unique. Like, caring for children is what we excel in but reaching out to you and then reaching out you know to my daughter's going to be secondary school they're there aren't they staff are, are like bursting to tell what they know aren't they? you are Definitely. yeah yeah i always take it as a massive compliment when a parent actually opens up and says i'm struggling yeah. i take that as a huge compliment yeah. because it's such an act of trust as a parent myself to say to one of my daughter's teachers like i'm learned about her learning I think there could be barriers there that I've not identified it took a long time for me to ever sort of verbalize that yeah. so when somebody does that for me I, I do I take it as a huge compliment and I'm, I'm in then I mean you ain't going to shake me off I'm probably really annoying actually but <laughs> hey ho <laughs> I don't think you're annoying I think you're just a, a fact teller once you get going you are told what you need to know that's what I found when I've gone to you as a professional as a colleague about the student because I've been able to come to you and go I, I don't really understand this but I've come to you as, as, as a best friend and gone I don't understand this you, you just come with facts there's no emotion in it you're like no this is what's happening and I think that's what's important dealing with SEN you need the facts the emotion out of it don't you you need to know yeah and that has taken I'm not 
I'm not brilliant at that. I've had to do a lot of work on that myself. I, one of the one of the ladies who I used to used to be my boss used to say to me, you know, just stop having so many stop emotionally responding. <laughs> so it, it does take a lot, and I and I won't always I won't always not emotionally respond. So I do have to check myself quite regularly, or come into your little cupboard of an office and jump yeah. up and down and scream and shout. But that's that's what we're about though if we didn't have that fire in our belly then we wouldn't be doing the job we do i don't know becky i don't uh, emotionally respond to anything to be fair (laughs) (laughs) okay you keep telling yourself that (laughs) you you work we talk about a lot about young people and students and stuff like that but you also work within an environment when there's a lot of adults with sen needs so If we talk about, if we just look at me, what, what barriers do you see for me? So my, my dyslexia can be disgustingly awful. And well, I'll let you tell me. So what barriers do you see for me at work with my SEN needs? I don't see them as barriers. And this is something that this bring, you know, this whole concept of neurodiversity. I don't see what you see as a barrier, as a barrier. Good. You see things so differently to the way I see things. And I love that because you need that kind of perspective, especially in what you do. I mean, it just astounds me. You can call something from a hundred yards. Do you know what I mean? And, and whereas the rest of us just see it for base value, you'll dig and you'll go underneath that. So I can't say that I see anything as a barrier. I look, sometimes I look at your blogs and I want to change your grammar a little bit. <laughs> But again, it's not a barrier because it's it's you. And I think as well that just it's such an incredible role model for other for children and adults that don't think they should do certain things because they've been diagnosed or they're undiagnosed. You own it. So are you saying that it's okay for people like me or with autism that we can just walk around being ourselves? Is that what you're saying? It's not okay, it just should be. It just you know, there is no okay or anything, it just should be because this is we're never going to get any better I, I just think a society will just will just thrive when people can just be who they are oh please i'm trying to pigeonhole themselves into a certain way of being it's just never going to work because you're always you're always going to have a, a, an element of society that is just breaking their heart to be something they're not and that's just not okay so yes be yourself what do you think, I mean, I, I've said this to most people, obviously you didn't know Blondie, but you know of her, I talk about her enough. What would have been different for Blondie if school had been different? So it is completely different. You've got to remember, we were talking, you know, I'm 40, we'll talk about from when I was 12. But what, what would have been different if she had got what she had needed at that point? It's so hard to say in it, because as, as you and I know, there are some that do slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to happen. But I just think... I just think you probably always was the person that you you are now. And if you had just had the right people to reach out to you and say, actually, you don't want to be doing this. You don't want to be doing this. You just need a different direction in life. You just need the support to to understand what's going on in your head and and to have that support at home um, and just have somewhere else to go where you didn't feel judged, where you didn't feel that people had already written you off. Um, yeah, you would have just, you wouldn't have had to go for everything you'd gone for. You know, I get quite angry about it. I, I hate the idea of any, any child being out there and suffering the way that you did because it's so unnecessary. 
it's so unnecessary. Um, so yeah, life would have been, I, I like to think life would have been very different for you. If you had been in our school now, oh. you would have had you, you would have had me, you would have had, you know, our team, <laughs> our boys, wheels, you know, Kerry, all of them, Tom, they would have been there for you. And it just breaks my heart that, that there are still kids that occasionally slip through, but we're getting better. We're on it. I think that if Blondie had gone to our school and had us as a team, oof, she she would have never suffered for as long as she did. Yeah. Stuff would have still happened, but it yeah. wouldn't have gone on for as long as it did because we would have stopped it because that's what we do. We wouldn't have happened in the same way. And it's even just the little things. Yeah, we may not catch everything straight away, but it's just, for some kids, it's just knowing that there are a friendly face. There's somebody that day that's going to know your name they're going to ask you how they are and they, they genuinely want to know how you are and even if they can't or you feel and I should think that's quite hard for a lot of our kids because they have managed for a long time on their own and feeling as if they're invisible yeah. but even if you don't believe that that person can help you and I know sometimes you, you face that um, it's just knowing that they'll constantly be there and eventually you'll let them in and things yeah. will be different. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get with, through with Blondie's people. So the reason, like I said at the beginning, you're here is because if you had been who you are now to Blondie when she was younger, life would have been different. But also, as part of Blondie's people, who you are for me now makes my life a lot different. Without you, I, there's loads of stuff I want to be able to do. And I, she hates this. What I'm doing right now, she hates that I'm doing it. I'm going to say it. Yeah. What, what, what Blondie also needed, forget SEN, if you had been 14 and I had been 14 and we'd been friends, I think life would have been different for me because you're one of the few people that wants the best for me. Nothing to do with you. You never try and get nothing out of me. Whatever you do for me is usually for me. And so for that is really why you're one of Blondie's people because I think you've always been my friend, if that makes sense. I, I honestly, it looks like I'm doing it selflessly, but you don't know how much you bring to me. Now this is turning into a bit of a love <laughs> session, but... It's the truth. And this is going back to what I said before about the fact that your SEN isn't a barrier. The way you look at things, you, you kick me up the backside regularly. And you do, you know, we, we, we didn't come from exactly the same backgrounds, but we both come from working class London families. And there was no, it was, you know, my parents did know I'd do all right. And they had an expectation that I would always do my best. But, you know, we was never, there was never a, a massive expectation to do university or go on to higher education or whatever. But at the same time, it, I've lost the point that I was trying to make. I'm sure what, all I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is that it is, that's no, gone. This <laughs> is <laughs> you never know, right? She sounds mental. The woman's got a law degree. She's just yeah. mad. <laughs> Oh my god, I am, and I'm, look, I'm sweating out. This is ridiculous. I can't remember the point I was trying to make. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is about twelve o'clock tonight, and go. I remember what it was. <laughs> my point that you took over was is that the most important why you're one of Blondie's people is is that you're a true friend. But I think you would have been a true friend back then as well. You would never have looked at Blondie and gone, "Uh, nah, I, she's horrible." Trying to make so the fact that we weren't exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we weren't exactly in the same place at yeah. that age, I think we would have understood each other. Absolutely. But 
and and fundamentally that's because we would accept each other and yeah. that's so then that comes back to that whole point of yes people should be who they are because it can only make things better yay yeah. I made my point. <laughs> i ask everyone the same question so i'm going to ask you what if anything have you learned about yourself in lockdown or about others um what have i learned what have i learned oh my god have you learned anything oh definitely i'll tell you what i've, I've learned, learned. Go on. i've learned that there is no i shouldn't put limitations on myself i don't know why lockdown, i think lockdown's just given me that time to kind of be reflective yes um so i've definitely learned that during lockdown um i've learned that i can fill my time with eating stuff <laughs> far more than i should um i've learned other stuff as well but yeah i can't really verbalize it right now to tell you what i've learned and this goes to our whole group i've learned that if you really love someone or they're really your friend or whatever lockdown distance nothing will change that because me and you and our group we started out as work colleagues but we've had the best time during lockdown via zoom and phone calls like the, uh, today this morning we were sharing memories so for me i've learned that how important it is for me to have real friends not just just seasoned friends to have long-term yeah. friends is very important for anyone's mental health definitely definitely and just to be able to have those memories it's all part of who we are and it is part of a growth. It's part of an individual growth as well, having good friendships. It gives you the confidence to be who you are. Becky, you've made it all the way through the interview. Well, apart from that complete... They're staying in. They're staying in. They've got to know. No, 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 they've got to know. I look like such a middle-aged menopausal nutter. Don't leave this bit in the graph. Is I, am. Story? I am. <laughs> Becky, it's been brilliant interviewing you with your crazy, sweaty menopausal self. Say goodbye to everyone. <laughs>